Alec McGillis reports for ProPublica. He covers politics and government. But over the last few months, he's been thinking a lot about education, who's getting an education right now, and who isn't. In his off hours, Alec tutors kids in his hometown of Baltimore. He started thinking about all this when one of his students, a kid we'll call Shamar, went into lockdown, the way most of us did last spring. Shamar is 12 years old, and his lockdown was especially chaotic. Shamar's mom struggles with addiction, and he was moving from one house to another, staying with whatever relative could take him in. The one stable thing in Shamar's life, Alex says, had been school. The story that I tell in the piece, which which just really kind of stuck with me, was this time where I where I went to pick him up from school. And instead of running around the playground, you know, jumping on the jungle gym like he usually did, he he was he came walking up the, the sidewalk toward me and looked really, really sad. And he thrust this paper at me and I and I assumed it was some kind of letter from school saying that he had misbehaved or that his grades had plummeted. And instead it was this form letter that went out to the whole class just saying that their uh, very young so- social studies teacher had quit for unspecified reasons just a, about halfway into the school year. And and I re- read this and I look up at him and he, he actually had, this is this is not, you know, Hollywood, he actually had a single tear streaking down his cheek. Why was this so emotional for him? Well, because she she had been his, as he, as he said to me in that moment, he said, she's my she was my favorite teacher. She was this nice young woman who he would often stay after class to help kind of straighten up a room with her and just was kind of her little buddy. And they had just somehow hit it off. And and now she was just just gone, just like that. So here, there was one more thing in his life. This one more kind of thing that seemed good that was that turned out to be very temporary. I mean, you're you're laying out how important school is was to Shamar. So when school went remote last spring, how did he handle it? He he just um, he he just withdrew. He ended up basically spending those several months of the, of the end of the school year in a succession of dark rooms in various houses with the blinds drawn with his video games. When Alec talks about Shamar, you can hear this slight undercurrent of guilt in his voice. Alec knows the kid Shamar was before remote learning and after. He wonders if having the privilege to shelter in place meant people like him cut kids like Shamar out. I was, you know, like so many others, I was much too, in that moment, kind of inclined just to hunker down, you know, with my own family and and sort of take the, take the whole sort of lockdown, bend the curve uh, ethic as an excuse to kind of just, to just turn inward. And, and I've seen that happen all around me with others here in town and elsewhere. And I find it very troubling. Today on the show, as kids hunker down for another round of remote learning, Alec hopes introducing you to Shamar will make you rethink what it means to be safe at school. Because, he says, it didn't have to be this way. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. 
When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Alec's relationship with Shamar is really personal. He thought hard about whether to report on it, ultimately deciding that by writing about Shamar, he could more fully explain the challenges of learning online, especially for kids with fragile home lives. Because Alec has been with Shamar for some pretty telling revelations. One kind of heartbreaking moment recently was that as we were getting ready for the start of the school year, I um, had picked him up to go, I think that day, I can't remember if we were going to the pool or if we were, he was just coming to hang out at our house with my sons. Um, he, was, he just was trying to get him out of the, out of the dark house one day and and he, and he announced brightly that, that he'd had a strange dream the night before. And I said, oh, what was the dream? And he said, well, my, it was that I was in seventh grade. And I said, well, Shamar, you, you're going into seventh grade. You're starting seventh grade next week. And he said, what? I thought I was still in sixth grade. I said, no, no, you finished sixth grade. And he said, but sixth grade, but the, in the spring, we were on the computer all the time. I thought we were just going to keep doing sixth grade because it hadn't been real in, in the spring. We hadn't actually <laughs> finished it. And it was heartbreaking because, in a sense, he was right. He hadn't finished sixth grade. They'd done basically nothing at the end of sixth grade for several months. But he was going on to seventh grade. After you realized Shamar was so unmoored by remote learning, you started talking to teachers, like his teachers, but also just teachers around Baltimore about their own experiences with kids like Shamar. What did you hear from them? What I heard from them was very similar to what I was seeing with Shamar, where they had incredibly low participation from their students in those spring months. I mean, you talked about classes where just one or two kids would show up for the Zoom. That's right. And that was in the case of a teacher who works with, with, a, with small classes. He works with high needs, high school kids, um, you know, very you know, emotionally troubled high school kids who've been through a lot who are at this one kind of specialized high school. So he normally has between five and 10 students in a class and he often would have only one or two or often zero kids showing up. Zero. Zero. So he would just be sitting there with no one, no one there. Were there technical challenges? Is that what was getting in the way? Certainly for, for some students, although in the spring, the way it would often work out with the technical challenge was often not so much that students wouldn't be logging on at all, would have no way of logging on, but rather that they'd be logging on with their phone. Why was that a problem? That was a problem because a lot of the programs that teachers were trying to use for the classwork just don't work so well on the phone, like Google Docs. You know, if you're trying to get get the kids to write something on, on Google Docs, it just it was very unwieldy on the phone. I mean, the picture that emerges is like, the system that's available to the kids is very haphazard. Classes keep sort of changing their digital locations up to the last minute. And then kids' lives are also haphazard. And so it's exactly what you're talking about. Kids sort of joining from a phone when they can, not necessarily, you know, sitting at a desk the way they would at school. 
Absolutely. So there's been so much attention on on the sort of hardware of this and the web connection, just getting the computers to kids, getting the hotspots to kids, getting the, the Wi-Fi to kids. But that really is, you know, half the battle or even less than half the battle. Um, the much bigger issue, you know, what I've seen here is the communication between the teachers and home. So getting those, getting the right links, getting the logins, um, getting the assignments actually to, to the kids. And then even more than that, having the support at home to make sure that a child is actually getting online and is actually, you know, to some degree, at least doing the work that is being asked of them. And, and that really, that's, that really is the main issue for someone like Shamar, where he actually, he lives in a very full crowded home. He's right now, and there are, there are eight people crowded into this one row house. Um, but no one's really in a position, position to, to sort of stay on him. You really get the sense of some of the weight and trauma that the teachers are carrying from your reporting, because as you tell their stories of dealing with remote learning, it's not like they're just dialing in from home and that's it. A lot of times they're going out and trying to find students, track them down, see why they're not there, sometimes having success, sometimes not. Oh, definitely. And um, one of Shamar's teachers did go last spring and go and try to find him um, at home and make sure that he was okay and visited him for a while. Um, the other teacher that I focus on most in the piece, who was Shamar's fourth grade teacher, a remarkable woman who has stayed very kind of interested in, in him and his, in his fate um, since then. She, she just described just how, how, how difficult it is for her having, she's got a very young elementary school uh, daughter and a, and a middle school son and, and just how hard it is for her to, to do all this while also making sure that they're getting online for their classes um, and then just constantly trying to, as she put it, trying to decide where to draw the line. Like how much do you push with the students who are not online, who are clearly, clearly not doing well with this new scenario? How far do you go in, in trying to, to help them and seek them out versus trying to at some level just, basically she, she, she's saying that she had to draw the line somewhere, that at some point she had to, it just had to be up to the family at home, the child's family to, to make this happen, that it had to be, as she put it, she said, it's a dance. Like I've been coming, practicing for this dance and my partners are not showing up. I, I keep going to rehearsal, yeah. my partners are not there. And, and at some point, you can only do so much. And, and she's actually got to the point where she's just, she's actually decided that she, that she really can only do so much. So she's not reaching out as much. She, she's not. In the early part of the summer, Alex says he was pretty optimistic about schools reopening in Baltimore for Shamar and for his own kids. COVID rates were relatively low. It seemed like the city had been spared a direct hit. And then nationally recognized physicians in Baltimore and elsewhere started making the case that a few simple tweaks to ventilation systems and masking could make schools safe for everyone. But then the president weighed in. What we want to do is we want to get our schools open. We want to get them open quickly, beautifully in the fall. It had this instantly kind of negative polarizing effect. We talk a lot about a lot these days about negative polarization in American politics where you're for something just because the other side is 
is is against it or vice versa. And that's exactly what happened here where you had Trump all of a sudden one day together with Betsy DeVos, his education secretary, make this very, um, very aggressive call for reopening schools in, in, in typical Trump fashion. It was essentially, you know, reopen schools or else. And it's sent everyone to their corners and teachers who who might have been open to coming back if it was done safely, now suddenly saw this as as a Trump thing and as, as if something that we were going to be doing just to kind of get the economy going again and just to get Trump reelected. And it was so key to understanding why we've ended up where we have now, which is this extraordinary situation where you have schools mostly open in a lot of red parts of America, despite the fact that they have generally had higher transmission rates and then and then schools closed in a lot of blue cities and towns including ones that have very low transmission rates alex says something else shifted the national conversation too these headlines claiming that children could carry the coronavirus at high levels all of them based off of a study from south korea they had found that 10 to 19 year olds um, were hugely contagious um much not just more likely to transmit the virus than younger kids, but also more contagious even than most adults. Um, it was this kind of shocking finding, and and it had this massive effect on the, on the whole debate. Suddenly, it seemed like ten to nineteen year olds, which are you know of course a, a big swath of, of school children, were were these kind of you know silent spreaders, these super spreader types who might not be getting that ill themselves but were actually incredibly dangerous to be around. And that came at the exact moment when a lot of districts were making up their minds, including Baltimore. And I heard it being cited by so many people, including you know, rank and file teachers and parents. But here's the thing, exactly at the very moment where that was coming out, you had experts who immediately raised questions about the study, immediately saw that there were all these problems with it, like very basic methodological problems. But the story stayed up, the headlines got out there, and then just a few weeks later, in fact, it came out that there had been all, all these prob- problems with it. The original, you know, source of the of the data, you know, it recognized, acknowledged that, that there had been problems, but the damage was done. All this was happening during the crucial month of July, when schools needed to make a call about the schedule come September. In Baltimore, the head of the school system started the month optimistic about in-person learning. A few weeks later, after 47% of parents said they preferred to stay out of school buildings, she decided the system should go all remote. For all the things we sort of don't know about the coronavirus and transmission and, and how safe certain activities are, one thing your article makes clear is that we, we do know what happens when kids don't go to school for a long time. You looked back at, for instance, what happened in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, other instances. What, what did that research tell you about what this moment of prolonged remote learning might mean for kids, especially kids like Shamar? Well, the research is is pretty clear. It's just it's devastating for kids, and and the consequences can be lifelong. There are all these different uh, examples from history, ranging from from Europe during World War II, when you had kids in in Germany and Austria that uh, basically had no schooling for a year or two because their after their cities were you know often just basically destroyed by by the aerial bombing um, of the war. 
researchers were later able to go back and compare those German and Austrian kids with kids in Sweden and Switzerland, where, where countries that were neutral in the war and where things had schooling had gone on as normal. And they found these major differences in income and other markers for how those how those students had fared later in life. Another example that I focus on is this really tragic example of Prince Edward County, Virginia, which was the county where very notoriously the um, white leaders in town and in the county had shut down the public schools entirely in the late 50s um, instead of um, having to integrate them after Brown versus Board of Education, they simply shut the schools down and set up private schools for the white kids and the black kids were left with nothing. And, and some of them you know, went off to live with relatives in other cities. Um, some of the high school kids enrolled in college in a black college in North Carolina, even, they were, even though they were still just you know, 14, 15 years old. But for hundreds of kids in the county, they essentially had nothing. And researchers later you know, found, not surprisingly, much higher rates of illiteracy. And then heartbreaking testimonials from these children as they grew up about how they felt that it had really kind of marked them for life and left them just feeling, you know, what might have been, what might, have, what might, what might my life have been if I had not gone these, these several years without schooling. These moments in history where universal education fell short, they're really ugly and often racist. I, I wonder if you see echoes of that history happening now in Baltimore. Oh, absolutely. But here's the thing. Here's the, 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 the irony of it is that it's, and this, is, this, is, this is delicate, but right now the cities where the schools are more likely to be closed are cities that are, are run by our democratic cities and states. The, a, a, a black child is now more likely to be going, is right now more likely to be going to school in Florida or Texas than in Maryland or Massachusetts or California. And there was a line in the piece where I, I quoted a, a, a white progressive activist in, in Detroit who was obje- objecting to the fact that they were holding summer school in Detroit, in-person summer school, and, and arguing that this was putting black children at risk and, and said that, you know, this compared to the notorious Tuskegee experiments in the, in, in the South in the 30s when black men's syphilis was left deliberately untreated. It was just, you know, this nightmare of a scientific experiment. And this activist compared sending black children to school now to the Tuskegee experiments. The fact is that what we're now doing, the real experiment that is happening now is the reverse that we're, we're experimenting to see what's going to happen if we have all these black children, black and Hispanic children not going to school. Because right now the numbers are, are that black children are about as half as likely to be going to school, actually going to school right now as white children. So that's what's actually happening now. That is the actual experiment. More what next after this quick break. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. 
Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. How's Shamar doing now? Oh, it's it's really tough. I was there on Sunday night to check on him, and he, he's gotten to the point now where he's kind of finally figured out the logins. I think the logins are generally going okay. He's getting into the classes, and that took you know basically a whole week to figure that out. But now it's just the question of what, what's actually what he's actually doing with in in the classes, and whether he's actually getting anything out of it, and 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 doing any of the schoolwork that they're trying to to get them to do remotely. And I was going into his Google Classroom account with him going through the different subjects. And I was already seeing all these assignments piling up that were undone. And and, and it was hard to tell which of them really needed to be done, which ones didn't. Um, we started working on one in social studies and it turns out the link that he needed to read to answer questions about it, he didn't have that link anymore because the link had been in a in a chat with a teacher and that chat was no longer accessible. I mean, so it's just, it's just endless. It's deeply unworkable for for lots of children, lots of children, and especially children in a situation like his. Yeah. When do you think your kids and Shamar will be back in school? Well, the Balmer schools said they would reassess in mid October. Um, the superintendent is clearly very eager to reopen in some form. But there's, there is this incredibly strong resistance from the union. They're actually marching this week outside school system headquarters to demand um, no reopening until January at the earliest. Hmm. Is it notable to you that a lot of these decisions, they seem to be being made for reasonable reasons, like not through malice? I wonder if you look at this story like, do you see a villain here? I see lots of villains, starting, of course, with Trump and his, and his failure to control the virus. Um, but I, I also think we have to be honest about one other factor that, is, that has been driving these closures in blue cities and towns. And that is the, the fact that for a lot of Democrats and liberals, COVID has become something of a metaphor for Trump. We see them as one and the same thing. His because his failure, his failure to control COVID has made it so much worse for us. The scarier that COVID is, the scarier we see COVID as being. The greater his failure in controlling it. They've they've become kind of sort of equal in our minds, and synonymous. And so I do believe that to some extent, the risk of COVID and the risk of COVID in schools has been magnified in blue cities and towns because we have so linked it with with Trump himself. And and I suspect that if Trump were to lose the election, that very quickly um, in a lot of these places, we'd start to see a different approach to the school question. Um, and in fact- in, Really? You think it's that simple? I, I do believe that, that there's that dynamic. And, and in fact, there was an LA school official said as much. There, there was a, a, a recording of a call that came out where the, the official just said, look, we're, I don't think we're going to be able to reopen you know, right now, but I think I think after the election we can start talking about it. And there, there, there is that. I think we have to be honest about that political dynamic. You do a little bit of storytelling about the history of universal education in the United States in in your article, 
And I wondered why you thought it was important to go that far back and tell that story at the same time you were telling the story of Shamar and remote learning and Baltimore. I I felt it necessary to go that far back because I what I what I saw happening here in a big picture way was that we were putting at risk universal education in America, that we were at really at risk of returning to to the early nineteenth century before we created what we what were then called the common schools, this this public school system um, across the North and the Midwest um, in the mid 19th century that was really kind of a marvel of the world. We were one of the first countries to to set up a a, a real public school system that most children attended and that was supported by taxes that had, um, you know, um, some kind of real statewide, system-wide organization. It was so integral to American democracy and American self-government that we have that kind of a system. If you have kids going to actually going to school in some kinds of schools, but not actually going to school in other cities and other kinds of schools, that's no, that's getting close to no longer being universal education. Um, and, and it really bothers me when I see some people say, and I've seen this on both ends of the political spectrum. Well, you know, what's the big deal here? You know, these these urban schools, we all know they had lots of problems and lots of inequities. And and is it really that big a deal if kids are no longer actually going to them? And I've seen that. I've seen that that argument. And and you th- I think, wow, like you step back and think about that. Try, apply that argument to some some other area. Apply it to 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 food. You know, mm. we know a lot of poor folks, their diets are really, really lousy, you know, and really unhealthy. And is it really that big a deal if they don't eat, eat anymore right now? <laughs> um, I'm serious. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a pretty striking argument to make. I would argue yep. that. And I think a lot of the, the education experts I spoke to argue that, that schools, even the most imperfect, underfunded, struggling schools still provide a whole lot to children that they're not getting right now when they're at home in their dark rooms. Alec Miglis, thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for, thanks for doing this. Alec Miglis is a reporter at ProPublica. You can find his full story about Shamar in The New Yorker. And that's the show. Before we go, I've got a quick favor to ask. Many of you have called us to tell us how you're planning to make your vote count and help people around you have their vote count too. Thank you. If you haven't yet had a chance to give us a call, you can still do it. We're at 202-888-2588. What Next is produced by Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, Elena Schwartz, and Jason DeLeon. Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery keep the five of us honest. And I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back here tomorrow.